Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. For today's episode, Clint and I spoke with an incredibly special guest, Trinti Minha. You may know Minha from her groundbreaking films like Reassemblage and Surname Viet, Given Name Nam, from her foundational books like Woman, Native Other and When the Moon Waxes Red, or her wide-ranging scholarship and multimedia projects, which have been presented at museums and institutions worldwide. In a body of work spanning decades, the multi-hyphenate theorist and artist has challenged and reshaped how we think of documentary, visual culture, feminism, nationalism, and race. A new book by Minha, titled The Twofold Commitment, traces all of these threads in her film, Forgetting Vietnam, which was released in 2015 to mark 40 years since the end of the Vietnam War. The book features the film's script, paired with creatively arranged stills, as well as conversations between Minha and various scholars. To mark the book's launch in May, Minha joined us on the podcast for a rich discussion about the genesis of the project, the different functions of voice, text, and image in her practice, how she turns familiarity and alienness into productive ways of looking at the world, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We're so honored to have today's guest. We've often referenced her work in uh, our publications and our podcast, and it's great to be directly in conversation with her today. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast, Minha. Would you introduce yourself briefly? Yes, I'm Trin Minha, and I'm interviewed today as a writer and a filmmaker. I'm also a musician and a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And you're calling in, I think you said from the from the Berkeley Hills, is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. And we are really excited to be talking to you today about a new artist book that you have put together with the press primary information called The Twofold Commitment, which sort of centers on your 2015 film Forgetting Vietnam. I thought that I'd start by asking about how this book came about and you know, you are someone who works across various media, as you just said in your introduction. Why did you feel that it would be productive to turn the film or, or, or turn parts of the film into what I think you describe as an essay and an anti-essay in this book? Um, you know, it's not in the book that the film is um, an essay or anti-essay. In the, in the, in the press uh, note, I should clarify, yeah. Yeah, no, in the press note, it refers to the way that my film has been categorized most of the okay. time. So this raises a major question because my films are really at odds with categories in general. These are documentary, fiction, experimental, educational, and so on. So they are always at a little bit uh, off, you know, this category. And they lie probably in the space in between several categories. Uh, people have been, um, uh, you know, calling it uh, part of it fiction, part of it documentary, all these things. And experimental is very often used. But, you know, experimental in the sense of the Western avant-garde have some reservations, you know, for example. So I'm fine with, with all these categories as long as 
it doesn't as long as the film is not squarely fit into it it's just like a departure point in order to discuss the film and many people have used the term essayistic and essay for the film but i remember very well this uh, very nice instance in when i was showing forgetting vietnam at the tate uh, modern in um, in london the first thing that the curator was was uh, responding to was to say that the film is so anti essay <laughs> so for me that that shows where you situate the film it could be essay an essay or it can be an anti essay at the same time yeah it's it's an essay in that it's in that it's an attempt to navigate a very complex issue or set of issues but it's also sort of resisting landing on any meaning or definition or attempting or resisting kind of any conclusion that you would assume an, an, an essay film might arrive at um it's a really interesting definition um so but getting back to devika's question we just wanted to we were wondering about where the idea for this book came from as a corollary to the film was this a, was this something you had in a, in mind when you were making the film or shortly after or is this like a more recent development and then uh as a follow up to that how do you see the two the book and the film interacting with each other in and how and sort of uh what's your goal for these two things and their interaction in the world how do you see them being a productive partnership <laughs> yes thank you for the uh, for the question actually with every single film of mine there has been a publication of the transcript uh, in the first few books that i did like frame a frame and cinema interval you have more than one film in the, in the book starting from the digital film event you know which is the the book that focuses on the fourth dimension the film the fourth dimension night passage uh, the film that comes after is related to the book uh, the d passage you know digital way the digital way and then you have this book on forgetting vietnam and there is another book that comes out also uh you know um, um, a couple months ago which is called traveling in the dark and that is related to the transcript of the film what about china which came out i think in 2022 is that right Yes actually it, it was finished in 21 but I only showed it in 22 because I didn't want it to be shown online only I waited in order for it to be uh, shown you know in uh, in good uh, with good equipment and good screening and so on um but the idea you know is that yes every uh, it's the same concept as in my films the verbal the visual and the musical are not subservient to one another they don't exist in uh, a relation of domination and subordination they are not used in order to underscore or to illustrate or to explain anything so that's how i see the role of the book in relation to the film just going off of that um i'm i'm interested in how both the film and the book use voice text and translation 
you've written a lot about how these elements function in documentary practice, particularly, I think in the When the Moon Waxes Red, you, you've written about how the other's voice in documentary, even when captured directly, is often flattened through the processes of translation, subtitling, commentary. How do you see this film, Forgetting Vietnam, like how you use text and voice here? And also maybe how then you transpose them to the book. How do you see yourself intervening in those practices? Well, it's uh, if you see the film, you know, I think that the film answered the question quite, quite um, clearly in the sense that um, did you see any instance in the film where I use voice in order to explain the image? And even here, you know, when you interview me, I give you maybe the process of working, but I'm not explaining, I'm not telling people how this should be read exactly. The room is open for whatever you can come up with or whatever you want to link with. So this is the role of the verbal, you know, in relation to to the image. And in order to, when I say flatten out, it's because... Um, People think that just pointing a camera, especially in documentary milieu, right? Pointing a camera or a microphone at someone, getting the word uh, from the person themselves is in a way capturing the truth. You don't capture truth. What you capture is a performance. Even if that performance is awkward, even if that perform performance is not always um, staged ahead of time, you know, it's a kind of performance that you are catching. So this is very important to keep in mind, you know, when you use words, for example, and uh, on image. So in Forgetting Vietnam, you have a lot of voices. There is one voice that, come, uh, that comes with the text, that run on the image. There is the voice of uh, singing. So you have a lot of uh, singing in the film. And you have uh, different kinds of songs also, folk songs, classical, popular songs, and so on. And then you have um, the voices of marginalized people whom you could hear, like the taxi drivers. And you have the voice of the poets, the insurgent poets that are quoted you know, in the film, and also the voices of poets um, in Vietnam, you know, for example. So you have a multiplicity of voices that are worked with. So the film has these wonderful instances, like you were saying, of, of capturing almost obliquely taxi drivers' conversations, you know, people on the street, um, these in snippets of conversation. When you translate them on the screen in English for intertitles, what is that process like? Do you grapple with, you know, the, the loss inherent in translation and the questions of authenticity that come up, the questions of who is the addressee and, you know, it, when you are translating Vietnamese dialogue to English? Can you talk about that process and what it brings up for you? Yes. No, it's very good that you come back to that. Uh, you already raised in your question earlier and I forgot to go there. But it's very good that you relate to that because I made a film called Surname Viet Give Name Nam just in order to address the question of 
subtitling translation and the politics of in interviews. So this I have been dealing with for a very long time. And what you see in Forgetting Vietnam is that whenever I translate, you know, um, as uh, Walter Benjamin would say, the worst, you know, the hallmark of bad translation is to try to uh, limit, you know, another language or to try to use idioms um, that you are familiar with in order to translate another language. So the literal translation is not always the best translation. It actually always betrays something. It can betray the meaning or it can betray the sound, you know, of what is being said because language for me is very musical and you have to retain that musical quality. I don't translate literally. First of all, I take into consideration the fact that in film and subtitling, you only have a limit that you can put on 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 the screen, like 18 words is are the longest that you can have. Most of the time, it's just 12 to 14 words. And this people forget, right? So in Chinese film, for example, you have this long, you know, subtitle and then it disappears and nobody complain about that. But when I deal with it directly and I pull out, you know, the um, the subtitling as in surname Viet Kim name Nam, giving it just just the time to to read it, you know, and then no more than that. People start noticing, which is exactly what the film is trying to to call attention to. This additional layer that you put on language, on film, and so on. So this is one way of translating. You translate the spirit of what is being said, you translate the sound of what is being said, and sometimes you translate the meaning. And you don't translate literally, and you don't limit it to an expression that you know well. Even if when you translate it's a little bit awkward, it's better that than to render it into a kind of English, uh, I don't know, idiom. So that's one question. The second question about translation is that one has to take it much wider because making a film is already translating reality. Uh, and of course, putting together images, text and sound is really doing three other levels. So that's where we should uh, locate translation in every level and in every element of filmmaking. How do you feel about the book which takes away the voice element, right? So you see the still images and just the text in English. How do you feel people might interact with that and what might they actually gain from that reduced version of the film? Yes, you, you have not only the voice, you know, of course the voice is the body. Uh, it's uh, one element of the body. And as I said, language is always the music of a body and the music of people. Uh, so when you deal with language, there's that dimension that one has to take in. And here, as you said, there is none of that dimension. And when I work on film, you know, um, the choice for the different kind of voices, you know, come in very strongly. But in Forgetting Vietnam, I have already taken out the voice over, um, you know, that I usually have in my other film. And that is in relation to uh, the fact that while I was 
uh, when I started filming, uh, shooting for this film, it was in 95. You see all the people who appear in the film, actually most of them have passed away by the time that I finished the film. And then also in the process, I lost my father. And that also pushed the film in a very different direction. At first, you know, the film was focused on the role of the woman rower, the one who take people from one shore to another shore. But uh, my the fact that my father passed away opened the door for me to um, the non-human. And I, th I think that was very strong. It was there before, but his passing away just opened that door and I refocused the film on the body of Vietnam as a body that is liquid and that is related to its formation. It has hundreds of thousands of little, you know, rivulets and rivers in the country. So the, the country is crisscrossed by water. It is a body of water, in other words. So this is where, you know, the um, translation comes in, that you see the, the, the a country, not necessarily only through people or people's stories, but you see it through its formation. And the term in Vietnamese for country is land and water, you know, đất nước. But you can just say nước and it's already the country. The fact that we lose, you know, the voice. Uh, one of the things that we gain in losing the voice is that, and it's the same with interviews, I make a big difference between the spoken word and the written word. If you want to publish an interview, people naively think that you can just transcribe it as it is. I read a lot of these interviews. They have no interest for me. You have to, whenever you publish an interview, you have to uh, go into what lies between the spoken word and the written. So you would be um, dealing with uh, the loss of all the body bodily gesture, uh, something that appear clear when you talk and you see each other, may totally not quite you know understandable or a little bit uh, ambiguous or obscure when you lose that side. So you have to work on it so that you keep everything that is being said, but you um, you work on it uh, differently so that it becomes something between the written and the spoken, and not simply the, the written or simply the spoken. This is what you have when you, uh, when you go to the book. Um, you can see that the, the interviews is something that address a reader. It's not simply a listener, but it's also the reader. So part of the music is, is kept in what is being said, but also uh, it has to be appealing to the reader and not just, um, you know, something that we might express through onomatopoeias, for example, you know, all these exclamation, the, these you know, and so on and so forth, all of that, you know, is gone. So this is what introduced us into the written, the between the spoken and the written word. And books that has this conversation are interesting in that sense. And that's why Whenever I have a book on conversations, it's all conversations. And the only difference is the transcript.
Maybe you could talk a little bit about the process of editing the interviews for this book. Were the interviews that published in the book, are they the same as they were published in, in their original state? Or did you look at the transcript again? Did you return to the transcript and reconstruct them? How did you approach that uh, editing process for the for uh, the twofold commitment book? You know, except for the transcript, all the conversation had been published before. In that sense, there is very little corrections. But as with every every publisher and every editor, right? And here, Rachel Walensky, you know, they have their own way of um, being consistent. In that sense, you know the the corrections are mainly in relation to consistency, how you and what you adopt, like uh, the American spelling or the English spelling. Um, so they are small, you know, the, the, what what uh, we call copy editing, but not really, you know, any kind of uh, major shifting or anything like that. The same with the transcript. But I must say, Dorothy Lin, who is the book designer, did a really great job because she went into the film, she looked at the film, she looked at how I um, work with letters. Mm-hmm. Mm. The rhythm of those of that text, right? Yeah. And also, you know, even the font or things like that. So she plays with that between what is being written on the image and the, the transcript itself. So the book is is uh, divided with the uh, concept of the twofold. She divided the book into two. One part is the transcript, and the other part are the image, and are all, uh, you know, very playfully related to one another. So this is what uh, Dorothy has really uh, contributed, and she even, you know, because I want the the um, the letters not to come out, you know, academically, like uh, starting from one, um, you know, one margin and going to the right or to the left. Here, it it has its own uh, design. It's fluid, like, it, you know, it flows across the page like the... Yeah. Appropriately. Um, quickly, before we move away from the design, though, how involved were you in the selection of the of each of the stills that correspond to each text on the pages like how what was that process like figuring out which images would match which bits of text and then because I've because I I was um, interested in this brief scene of an installation called I believe uh, outside inside a musical performance in an installation and I went to the to the book and I noticed that that there were no images from that and I I assumed that that was deliberate because it's so much concerned with with music but i wanted to kind of ask about where how you made those decisions what to leave out what to leave in uh actually you know with a this question would apply for all of my previous book because uh i did the book designing for my previous books with bordier even though you know of course what we can do is very limited because they are published by uh, academic uh publishers the book the d passage by Duke University Press. You know, they did a very good job. Other than that, you know, with this book, I, you know, I was traveling all over with my new film and so on, and I had very little time. So I actually give, uh, you know, a, a series of image um, to, the pre- to the publisher, 
And Dorothy was going through them, and she was the one who select everything. And so the choices was really hers. It's not mine. But of course, when I went over it, uh, once she come up with a draft, I thought that she has a way, you know, of um, playing that is very different from mine. And this is what makes the beauty of it. Uh, she has her, her own logic. The way that she puts together, like, a, you know, the, the very daring... Uh, the, uh, juxtaposition of two different, differently formatted image. Like one image is a large rectangle, and the, the second image is a smaller rectangle, or the rectangle within the rectangle. All of that, I think she did very nicely. Um, I wanted to go back to the film a little bit, and uh, you know, you you have this famous formulation about wanting to speak nearby, uh, you know, that kind of frames reassemblage and it's it's your way of maybe constructing an anti-ethnography, some might call it. Um, I'm wondering, like, when you've made films about your own so-called home country, your birth country or motherland, whatever term you want to use, how does that mode of speaking nearby change? I mean, is... Did you feel when you were making Forgetting Vietnam, was it similar to filming in Senegal? Or is there actually a sense of nearness? Or is there a sense of like new sense of farness that you experienced? Yeah, um, actually, you know, I, I this remind me that earlier uh, when you were asking about the, the voices, uh, the loss of the voices, and I was speaking about the loss of my, my father, which led to my taking out, you know, the voice over. Um, so the question of speaking nearby, you know, um, first of all, it entails that you are very close to whatever you are showing. You can be close to the people even if they are not, they are not there. Even when you are speaking, they are absent. You have to treat it as if they are right next to you. So that already tells you that it doesn't matter whether I do it in Senegal or in Vietnam. Uh, I don't put myself totally as an insider of Vietnam. This is what people try to confine you all the time, right? When I started out making a film on Senegal, everyone asked, why not make a film on your own culture? Of course, you know, everyone said you get hostility from both sides, you know, for example, not from Senegalese people, but for example, sometimes you may get a hostile question from a black viewer and certainly a lot of hostile question from Asian American viewers, for example, simply because you are uh, not dealing with quote and unquote your own people. For me, it's so absurd and so possessive and so illusory to think that just because you are born somewhere or that you live somewhere for a long time, you own that culture or you own that place, right? It reifies nationalism. I mean, that kind of yes logic, yeah. Absolutely. So for me, um, you know, shooting in Senegal, I don't want to speak for the people, so I would want to speak intimately close by, but not on top of them, not for them, not about them, you know, so this 
has been the main thread throughout all of my films. You know, one of the things that you notice already in Surname Viet Give Nam Nam and that I continue even more elaborately in Forgetting Vietnam is that the more you go into your culture, the wider it gets. You know, so you are not an insider. You are still at the threshold of inside and outside. And especially since I have gone away from Vietnam, the fact that I come back there, actually there is one line in the film that is for the Vietnamese. You know, um, it's not, it doesn't matter you know, if uh, other, other audience uh, members did not get it. But there is one line in it where one of the local person was asking very loudly, Miss, are you Vietnamese? So the fact that I, I speak Vietnamese and everything uh, doesn't mean that I'm an insider because just the fact that you have gone outside, the way you walk, the way you dress, the way you address people, and I still have a way of addressing people that is very polite that today people don't use anymore. You know, the young people don't even, you know, for example, all of that immediately tell people that you are from abroad. You know, so this is where speaking nearby comes in still very strongly. So as you could see, I don't do that. I don't explain anything about Vietnam. But I did bring out some of the myths for example, of formation of Vietnam. And I bring in some of the most intimate scenes, you know, that uh, that I caught with people whom I have shot and who had passed away now. They are, uh, in the larger sense of the word, you know, relatives uh, of a larger family community. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. There's a line in the film, not in the film, sorry, in the book, in, in one of the interviews, which I was so struck by where you say, it is not unusual for many of us to unconsciously use homeland and memory to purge the violent emotions attached to our unbearable suffering or to events of war. And of course, this was specific to, you know, like people who have, for instance, whose homeland, like in your case, is associated with like a recent war. But I... It struck a chord with me also because I grew up in India and now I've lived here for 10 years. And I found that the experience of loss and longing can trigger selective amnesia and selective permanence so that, you know, it's almost like the idea of the nation and belonging becomes solidified because I'm far away. And, you know, and it's something I struggle with. It almost like leaving the nation somehow cements this feeling of nationalism in me. And I'm I'm wondering, like, when you are making a film like this that actually deconstructs ideas of the nation, how are you grappling or working against nostalgia? Uh, you know, the the how nostalgia, but also like being the way in which being an immigrant in America can 
force you to look for ownership elsewhere sometimes. <laughs> That's nice, you know. <laughs> Very nice that you you gave that that feedback. You know, actually uh working with with um with this film first of all the notion of nostalgia. I think you you rightly raise it because it could appear that way. Uh, especially also because I was choosing songs that were war songs, you know. The, the music, you mean the pop songs and the, yeah. The pop songs were some were songs that were listened by a whole generation, like the generation of my parents and a little bit younger as well. And people love these mm. songs. I don't really always um, identify myself with these songs, right? But it's like a, a mourning. The film is also a mourning. It's a remembrance of uh, a war, you know, um, an, an anniversary to commemorate the anniversary of a war. But it is also um, a way, you know, of mourning all the people who appear in the film and who, you know, have passed away since then. So in that sense, you know, you don't... Um, nostalgia for me is not... It is there, but it is not related to a country a place for me nostalgia is something that is very fleeting something that i feel for example when i see a, a certain quality of light when i smell the rain you know and i suddenly remember you know the rain that that vietnam is a raining country and so on um and the other thing also is it the, it's the remembrance of a time or a state of mind where you are most of the time very innocent, you know, so you don't, it's like now when we see war all over, you know, this war that never ends, that pops up here, there, and so horrible. But of course, when you are right in the midst of the war, there are a lot of traumas, but you are able to sail through because of your innocence, you know, so that kind of innocence, that kind of wonder, the sense of mystery, like you would go in front of a house and you wonder, you know, I, I remember going in front of all these houses that were lived in by the French expatriates. And I would look at it and I said, How do, what kind of life is inside? Now, of course, I don't ask those kind of questions anymore. <laughs> but that's part of the nostalgia, nostalgia, you see. So this, in a way, is to respond to that part of your question, the nostalgia. The other part of question is um, how to deal with this question of ownership, right? Um, I think that that um, that's what we should always question ourselves for. Why is it, rather than saying we need to own something, you know, um, we should ask why are we being destabilized, un, uh, and, and what is it that destabilizes us? You know, for example, so if it is because people can come up with all kind of devices to intimidate you, to tell you that you should go home to where you belong, or to uh, explain or to justify, you know, their hostility, people can come up with all kind of device, right? But if your home is neither there nor here, and I wrote a book called Elsewhere Within Here, 
you know, which is that whether you are in Vietnam or whether you are in the U.S., there is an elsewhere and you carry it with you. So that nobody can take away from you. And this is how I see the question of ownership. It's not owning a place, owning a house, owning a country, a nationality, whatever. It's being who you are and carrying, you know, that uh, uh, something that nobody can take away from you. At the end of the film, there's a list of dedicatees. And I assume that they are family members who've passed away. Is that correct? You know, um, I would have, ne I wouldn't have done this film, or I wouldn't dare to do that in a film like Surname Viet Given Name Nam, because uh, the people are still alive. Once they are, they have passed away. Uh, there is a little bit of more freedom to have their name, but these are names that are not only my relatives; they are public figures. They are poets, they are lawyers, they are um, uh, agrarian, uh, quote and unquote, agrarian experts, politicians, and many things, you know. Um, for example, one of them is the leader of the National Liberation Front, and that his photo appeared, he, was, he already passed away, and his photo appeared, for example, in the film. So... This is at the same time personal and very collective. It's not simply family members. They are figures. Well, it's interesting that so that, well, I mean, you're, and the way you're discussing nostalgia touches on that kind of the two, the, the twofold uh, yes. <laughs> meaning of the of, or functionality of nostalgia and that it, it fun everybody's, everybody knows what these songs mean, but everybody interprets them in slightly different ways and has different very very specific experiences that they associate with them. So I think that like, again, you're destabilizing this definition of nation and of a, of kind of a portrait of a nation um, by kind of, by insinuating these kind of, these irreducible personal experiences into the midst of kind of a collective idea. Another sentence that I really loved in the book, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something about how knowledge can get in the way of encountering people, ideas, cultures with a beginner's wonder, um, which I found very striking. Sort of what you were talking about too, right? In terms of the, the house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what you were just saying. Um, and I'm thinking about how knowledge is deployed violently often by colonizers, by anthropologists to lock people, you know, into certain preconceived ideas. At the same time, ignorance is also being deployed really violently nowadays. And I think what your films do, and especially Forgetting Vietnam does very well, is somehow manage to historicize on the one hand, while also balancing the impulse to remain free of a priori, like of preconceptions. Can you talk about like that balance? Like how I feel like history is really important nowadays. Like we need to remember and bring history into how we look at the present, but we also need to be able to encounter the present and the so-called other without the hubris of... Without categorizing, right? Yeah, yeah. Or without periodicizing, I think is the term of, you know, the 60s, that, that sort of thing. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, one does not exclude the other. So that's why I never, 
I never use the word not knowing or ignorance. I'm using the word non-knowing. Slightly different, right? You you can do all the research that you want on a topic, which I always do. But when you come, when you are on site, you are shooting and you are interacting with people, you forget all of that to come in non-knowing so that you can receive, you know, whatever, you know, people are giving you or whatever the that culture is giving you. You know, in East Asia, they have this very um, striking tradition of walkers, people who abandon everything they have and they walk uh, throughout the country, you know, and you still see them now in, in uh, Japan, for example. Tsai Ming Liang has a series of films about walkers, I believe. Yeah, they dispossess themselves. They walk, they dispossess themselves to receive fully the world. That's why it's not contradictory that you, um, and this is called the twofold as well, right? You you hold the knowledge. You are not uh, championing any kind of ignorance. And then you, on the other hand, you are holding the fact that uh, the non-knowing state would allow you to be very present to the now time. So history time and now time. And history time is unfortunately in the West and also in all the countries that has uh, been uh, quickly modernized, um, history is most of the time linear. Uh, people treat it very linearly, chronological dates, for example. But you see, there are many cultures around the world that do not abide by this linear sense of history. You see the Maori people, how spiral on, on, on their feature, on their face, on their body. For me, you know, this is the image of history and of time. Time is never linear. We make it linear for our convenience and sometimes it helps, you know, but time is very much a spiral. So it grows and it, it withdraws, and every time that it grows out, it changes. You never come back to the same point. Even when you redo the trajectory, you never come back to the same point. And you can see that, you know, if I return to Vietnam to shoot this, uh, the tendency is to say, I know this place, I'm going to shoot this, I'm going to focus on this because this place is known for this and that. But actually, when you go there, you have changed, the place has changed, you know, so you go back to something different in the spiral. And this is how we work, how we can bring together, you know, the two without excluding one another. And you can say that history, instead of seeing it as a line, you see it as a spiral and you see it in its thickness. It's very complex. You know, when you see history in around the world in its thickness, you include a lot of situation. Whereas if you see it as a, as a linear line, you reduce a lot. Uh, what you're saying is reminding me a lot of uh, when improvising musicians talk about their practice of rehearsal and preparation and then entering a situation and being completely open and present in the now as they're, as they're being creative. I guess the question that I have, though, is as you're entering this, these moments and maintaining this openness, what's your goal? How do you enter these situations 
without having a preconceived, um, practically speaking, without having a, a preconceived goal or idea of what kind of project you're going to come away with? Are you collecting? Are you are you filming, and then bringing back material and then collage and then collaging it together after the fact and looking through it, or how how do you approach that process? If I can quote the film, where to? <laughs> yes, uh, you know it's it's actually very simple because it corresponds exactly to how we live. You can live in a way that confines you to something that you want to see and want to hear, or you can live in a way that that leaves you open and vulnerable, that rewards you with all kinds of surprises and wonder, right? So it's like going out in the street. You don't know where the people go you know, exactly, but you look at them. And if something happened on the street, for example, it's uh, you can take it in, all in. You don't have to know what's the goal of it. Um, and this is a way of um, answering for the focus on the politics of everyday life. This is very feminist because with the feminist movement, for example, the question of the everyday becomes very important. Politics is not separated from the everyday, and you can uh, you can bring the the tiniest detail of your life, uh, of your everyday life, into the realm of politics. So for me, the everyday is something that you think you are familiar with, that you know, that is just routine, but it is also where the unexpected and the unfamiliar, you know, happen. And you cannot take a hold of your everyday. You go out in the street, something happened to you, you don't even, uh, you haven't seen it ahead of time, right? So you cannot grasp it, you cannot hold it, you cannot control it. But you think that you are familiar with it and you know it. With think that we already know this, we already know that, but actually uh, to find the unfamiliar in the routine, that's the politics of the everyday. And the camera is best for that. You know, the camera, the soundscape of uh, people and environment, the music, you know, that you get. So when I come to the editing table, it's not like uh, I just put something afterwards. No, because the I start writing for the film while I am shooting. The writing goes with, uh, I have raw footage, visual footage. I have raw notes and text. And then I have raw uh, music. And when I edit, there's not one that comes before the other. Because sometimes you edit according to the image, sometimes according to the sound, sometimes according to the text. And sometimes, of course, the music takes over because it has to have its own, it has to complete its musical uh, phrase. You have to respect the musical phrase, for example. So these are all elements that are worked out on the editing table. And the, the end of the, the, the result is something that is just as surprising for me as for the musicians, as for <laughs> the people whom I, I, you know, I focus on. In the book, there's one point in one interview where you talk about, you have this 
answer where you say one does not really control how one's work fares in the non-commercial world, but neither can one hand over theory, history, and culture to the dominant by indulging in pure marginality. I I found this really striking because I think some like both being mainstream and part of the dominant apparatus and being part of the margins in the artistic space, both can be romanticized and become like sites of aspiration. And I think that what you're saying is really interesting that if we just relegate ourselves to marginality, we are in some way giving up a certain sense of power to the dominant. But so for someone like you, whose practice is about unsettling dominant forms, unsettling, you know, dominant ways of looking and seeing and hearing, how do you negotiate those poles? And, you know, I think this question probably also calls upon the systems of funding and production that also work to keep certain artists in the margins and others in the dominant. Well, it, I do the kind of film that I do. I do the teaching that I do. <laughs> and I write the books that I do, all because of that, right? Because you don't, you don't want to, um, you know, it's, it's, it returns to the question that you had before between knowing and ignorance. And so I introduce non-knowing as something that is between knowledge and ignorance so that you don't simply uh, use knowledge in order to validate yourself or validate uh, uh, your work and you don't simply use ignorance, like indulge in marginality and simply turn every fight into something that is a binary opposition. You know, so you cannot simply have a bad and, and a good. You always actually, our lives is always situated in that gray zone in between. So how do I negotiate? You know, I used to uh, go around with at least two different um, kind of uh, name card, name tag. You know, one is for the academic milieu uh, because the scholars and so on, they have a kind of, uh, well, you know, artists are just uh, these um, you know, lax people and so on. And then you have in the film milieu a hatred for anything that is intellectual or that make you think and so on. I have to carry the two cards, you know, sometimes I give the card, whatever, you know, as professor to the academic world and I give the card without any title to the artist world. And this is how you also negotiate your, your ground in um, grant writing and so on. People always ask, you know, whenever they want to give me a grant, I'm so happy. I, I said, okay, they are speaking my language. I, I have a chance, you know, to get this grant. But ultimately, what they want is a story. And this is story, message, genre, category. All of that regulates the film world. It's so confining. Um, sometimes I am just find it so mind-boggling. And that's why uh, students who are moved by my teaching actually come out and they find their own direction. They are rich in what they have to offer. They are not intimidated by all these tools, you know, that is imposed on them. And this is how we negotiate. And we, uh, as, you know, um, Native American uh, student used to remind us, you know, we are not supposed to be there, but we are, you know, well there and surviving, you know, and so on. I wanted to ask about another one of these uh, non-binary 
dualities that you that you bring up in the film. Um, you you underline the use of the high eight footage from the mid nineties and then the HD, and you switch between the two, and you're always aware in forgetting Vietnam that you're either watching high eight or the HD, and you're the texture of each is really um, brought to the foreground. Can you talk a little bit about the use of those two different formats in this film and how you see technology kind of as a mediating, I guess it's always a mediating factor, but I think in terms of like new technology, the use of the phone as a recording device, how you see it as a mediating factor in memory in creating memory and documentary. Well, uh, before I, I start on anything, I would say that, Every image, every film image, is an image of memory. If you function in now time, everything you see is memory. A film image is always an image of memory. And in, in Forgetting Vietnam, I even have a, um, a, a place where, or a statement that goes with an, an image of a child. And it says, memory of the future. Of course, you would say, well... What is it, you know, memory and then future? That's only, they only contradicts when you see them in uh, linearly. But actually, when I shoot that image, right, when, when the child was shot, it was, it tells you about the future of Vietnam. And so every child is like the future of Vietnam. And by the time you see the image in the now time, uh, that, you know, the present is also indicative of the future. So that future is already a memory. So that's why, you know, now time is the time that brings to ev together everything, you know, past, present, and future. It bears everything, even though it doesn't belong, you know, to one or the, the other. But um, coming back to what you raised earlier, remind me. I was asking about the use of the different formats, the high eight and in the HD. And I think at one point you have a shot of uh, a street, I think in Saigon, and there's a, some text comes across that says the high tech image, how cool do I look? And I think, which is this moment of levity and I, I, that uh, kind of stuck out to me. Yes. Well, uh, first of all, you know, as you could tell, you know, the... Um, the footage are from two different times. And it was in the film, it says uh, 1995 and then 2012. So you have high uh, technology at the time, you know, the HD, and then you have low technology, which was the high eight footage. Um, what happened, you know, is that once more, it's a kind of twofold commitment. You, when you bring the two together, I wanted people to see very clearly that there is a different format, different framing for the high eight and a different format, you know, for, for the um, HD. So I would start very small and then the image would go bigger and you would see the size of the image. So I did that with the high eight, the, the 433 format. And then I did that with the HD to show the 16-9 ratio format. So um, by doing that, you call attention to the difference. But I can tell you that most of my friends who are filmmakers go in there and they said, 
if you didn't say anything, we didn't really notice the difference. We knew that it is too, uh, you know, to the resolution and everything. There are two different footage, but when the transition from one to the other is never something that is, um, you know, for them that stood out. On the contrary. Yeah, I think you don't, you'd only think of it in like a subconscious level at this point because we're so used to the, those switches between formats. But also, you know, you do it in the editing. If you edit it in a way that is very awkward, it would always, uh, people would say, oh, no, we are going again from this, uh, you know, format to this one. Why is she doing that? And I edit it with music. It's like working with strong beat and weak beats. If you want to them not to notice, you know, all the time this going back and forth, you work with strong beat on the cut. And this is how I, most of the time, you know, I bring in a cut that uh, you know is a cut, and yet it doesn't bother you in the way that an awkward, you know, uh, juxtaposition could uh, could be, for example. So on the editing, in order to bring out these cuts and at the same time to fluidly <laughs> go through the film without being bothered by all the cuts. There's also a scene where the intertitle says, the bigger the grain, the better the politics. And although I think it references grain literally, I for a second I, I wondered if you meant grain as in resolution, you know, like film grain. Um, and I, I think that might be a case of like productive mis, <laughs> misunderstanding or something like that. But I was wondering, uh, just to close out, if... If you feel that these the choice of medium, the choice of format is political, because a lot of, especially now as we move, um, you know, as we're losing um, works made on film and film becomes, physical film becomes less and less common, uh, many people find that to be a, there to be a political dimension to that change as well. The, uh, the things that digital represents, this kind of, devouring uh attitude uh, this kind of combination of ephemeral but at the same time like desire for permanence like there is something political to that um and i'm wondering if you feel that when you're making a choice of medium or is it for you a pr pragmatic choice uh certainly not only pragmatic if it is pragmatic um, choice then i would do away with all the high eight footage but to come back, you know, this we link up with what uh, Clint was was raising earlier. It's that uh, high and low technology, um, in a way, using these two, uh, you are immediately aware, you know, of the context in which you use them, right? In Vietnam, for example, like in many countries of the third world, um, the modernization uh, rate, for example, new technology came at a speed that makes it very difficult. So you have a few people on top who can adapt, but then, you know, the large uh, uh, people, you know, in the countryside and so on, it's very difficult to adapt. So what happened is look at the way, we should look at the way new technology or our relation to technology in general plays out in this uh, marketing world. You know, that low technology and new technology is always made incompatible. 
so that you know the low is uh, low technology is thrown away in order to make place for the new one. But they never devise things in such a way that we can keep our own our old computer, for example, for forever because the new one would adapt with the old one. It's that planned obsolescence, I think, is the term, right? The the corporate term. Yeah, you can you can translate that into the realm of the social. Right. How old people are mm-hmm. just thrown away, and you think that everything new, you know, is incompatible with the old. The way that I work with ancient and modern in films actually make new technology very ancient, you know, because it comes up with um, solutions, for example that materialize differently, but actually uh, in terms of concept and spirit, it leads us back to the time when voices are virtual, right? (laughs) And you deal with a lot of the virtual realm without all this new technology. So you have that aspect about new and old that is political in the film. I would... um, use, for example, high eight footage. And the uh, last film I made, What About China, even tells you more about it because at first I thought I was going to do something similar to Forgetting Vietnam, that I would come back and shoot, you know, the, because all the footage were in the countryside. I would shoot the city more uh, explicitly, especially a place like Shanghai where um, the contrast would be so huge, right? I look at the footage uh, on the countryside. I did have some cities, small cities footage, but I look at that footage and I said, it's all integral. The integrity of that footage is such that I cannot just bring in, you know, some kind of uh, 4K or HD footage just in order to make a point about the contrast or anything like that. Because what happened in 93, 94 is still happening today. And in any kind of uh, political situation, you know that in Vietnam, like in China, uh, if you want to deal with the political, you have to deal with it indirectly. You cannot go directly at it, you know, because not only you you jeopardize everyone who is working with you uh, and everyone whom you shoot, but also... You know, just because if you do that, you lose your subject. Most of the time, you know, it becomes something totally flat. But politics is very complex. It comes in many ways. You know, it comes into your life in many ways. So this is what I retain. And one of the aspects of how politics comes in is certainly the technology. This was just so wonderful and generous and and just a great conversation so thank you so much minha and i'll just remind our listeners to seek out the twofold commitment you can find it on the website of primary information we link it in our show notes Uh, do purchase the book it is a really wonderful addition as as we've discussed in this conversation to uh, forgetting vietnam but i think minha's work in general Um, And thank you so much. Well, thank you, Devika and Clint. Certainly, it was a very pleasant conversation. (laughs) Yes, same. Thank you so much. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism. 
publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.